Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay. Then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spetton, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we've got a lot of topics to cover. So we're going to look back at the weekend in the Orioles minor league system, talk about some players who were recently promoted, as well as dive into our shout out of players outside the top 30 in our personal rankings for the Orioles farm system. But first, we're going to recap the 2023 MLB draft and look at the Orioles draft class. And we have a special guest on tonight to help us do that. He's a writer over at Future Star Series covering prospects as well as the draft. He is Joe Doyle. Joe, how are you? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. We're uh, big fans of your work over here. I just want to start off with this, which is in a broad sense, how would you evaluate the Orioles draft class this year? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the Orioles went the Orioles way, right? Um, I, I was surprised with the amount of pitching that they brought in. I think that's obviously something that the Orioles not only need, but have kind of, um, they've been middling in terms of developing pitching to this point. But I think they got some really good clay in this draft that could be um, optimized into starting pitching strength uh, moving forward. But like, listen, uh, for, my, for my money, the Baltimore Orioles always draft off of a specific blueprint off of a specific model uh obviously enrique bradfield is a little bit of a a stray away from that he's more of a table setter he's more of a uh, cedric mullins type of a player you know he's not all launch angle and exit velocity but i think he's going to be a quick mover and i think he could take over for cedric mullins to be honest with you when he becomes a free agent but you look at the rest of the guys like mac horvath and and Jake Cunningham and uh, you know Matthew Etzel, these are guys that they have typically targeted with those types of traits. And so um, for that reason, I love the, the bats that they picked up, but I'm really interested to see if they can optimize some of these arms because they got some really good ones. Do you think they went with more arms this time around because 
they're more confident in their pitching development than they were when the Elias and company first came over. It seems like this past year, Justin Armbruster, Alex Pham, Ryan Long have really kind of taken a jump. So you think that has anything to do with it? It does feel like they may be turning a corner in that regard. Uh, listen, like, I I think it's easy to say that they feel as though they've turned a corner with pitching, but it's a lot easier to look at their farm system and go, they they, they need pitching. You know, that the organization just needs pitching. They have eight top 100 prospects right now by pipeline, and none of them are arms. Um, so I think that's correct. I could be wrong on that, but they just need depth. You know, they, they need options. The Baltimore is not an organization that historically has spent a ton of money, and you don't expect them to go out in free agency and, you know, spend $150 million on an arm, for example. So, um, you know, you got to bring in the the Baumeisters and the Lords and the Levi Wells and guys with big traits and try and optimize those uh, to just continue a factory of reinforcements coming up through Baltimore. So I, I think part of it was confidence, but I, I would I would have to think that if it was if you were weighing it, I would just think that they need arms in general. We kind of thought we had Michael S and, you know, the Brad Selick and, and the whole war room over there kind of pegged a little bit uh, after the last couple of years in their drafts. But I uh, thought we had a good sense of the kind of players the Orioles like to target. This year, you kind of mentioned it, threw us off just a little bit there, kind of heavy focus on the pitchers who throw really hard, some raw hitters. But do you think they're, they're kind of, the model might be evolving a bit to uh, incorporate where Major League Baseball is going now? Or is this kind of a looking at the draft class, how that shook out. This is just the Orioles adjusting to what maybe they saw as some of the strengths of this draft class. Well, I don't think the strength of this draft class was the pitching by any means. I think it was one of the more paltry years for college pitching in quite some time, but they drafted like Baltimore specifically drafted guys that had really interesting traits uh, like Jackson Baumeister throws a really firm, low slot slider with big spin Kiefer Lord Towards the end of the year, I caught him a couple of times. Started throwing this 84 to 85 mile an hour slider with two plane tilt. And, and, you know, that's a firm slider. Levi Wells throws a 3,100 RPM curveball. Um, like Teddy Sharkey has unbelievable stuff. He just is probably more of a closer. Zach Fruit, kind of the same thing. Um, I do think that Jacob Cravey was more of just a, a straight projection play. Uh, but it's hard to find a better operation and a better body than what Jacob Cravey brings to the mound. So that makes some sense as well. But I wouldn't say that Baltimore's model changed per se. I would say that their targets in the draft, kind of what I was alluding to previously, their targets in the draft might have changed a little bit. Uh, but the pitchers that they brought in, for the most part, all had a carrying trait. And that is something that I would certainly expect a, a team like Baltimore to target in any draft. You're, they're not going to go and grab a guy that, you know, um, for example, like Cleveland is very, very good at making the most out of kind of generic vanilla arms that don't have any carrying pitches yet. Baltimore is not really that way. They're going to try and overpower you with stuff and, and moldability. So, um, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying I think they went after guys with really interesting carrying pitches or carrying traits um, or things that you can't really teach, and I wouldn't expect anything less from Brad Selick and, and Mike Elias. And on the offensive side, it seems like it was a bunch of athletes with uh, some good speed to go go along with some good power, especially in Cunningham, Horvath, and, uh, and good defense. So what do you think that was about? Was there any just happened to be that way? 
Well, I, you know, I look back at some of Baltimore's previous drafts. I look at like the Judd Fabian selections and and some of the other players through the year, John Rhodes, like some of the other players that they've selected in the first five rounds. And it's for me, it hasn't really been like the speed and up the middle piece of it. And while that is a, a part of, I think, Baltimore's model, I think a bigger part of it is exit velocities and launch angle dispersion. And that's something that you get a like in spades here with Matt Horvath and with Jake Cunningham, especially. To a lesser degree with Matt Etzel, although he was kind of one of those types of players in 2022, Tavian Josenberger is probably the outlier. He has some projection left in his body. Um, he plays up the middle of the field, kind of a, uh, a budget version of Enrique Bradfield, can play a little bit of second base, versatile, uh, but he doesn't hit the ball necessarily as hard as the other three that I listed. So I think with Baltimore, they're generally going to go for guys that hit the ball really hard, hit the ball in the air, and have the ability to stay somewhere up the middle of the diamond. And all of these guys seem to check that box. As well as plate discipline. I, I feel like uh, swing decisions no are the major piece as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Enrique Bradfield, lead in defense, should play in the major leagues probably tomorrow. But it looks like the, the bat will be the difference maker between him being a solid reserve versus a high-quality leadoff hitter. What specific adjustments do you think he'll need to make to have success as he moves up the ladder? That's a good question. You know, I've never really thought of the things that he needs to change. I, I tell you, his profile fits really, really well in Baltimore with kind of that shorter portion right field and uh, the deep gaps. I, like, I think Enrique Bradfield is really built well for Baltimore, and it's a big center field. He's going to have to cover a lot of space, and they don't really have like a prototype table setter right now. I mean, I guess you could say that Cedric Mullins kind of checks that box a little bit, but. I think Bradfield has a higher ceiling in terms of his approach and the damage that he can obviously do on the base paths. If I was Bradfield, I wouldn't really change anything like hit with, I mean, maybe hit the ball in the air a little bit more, maybe hit some more line drives. He does hit the ball on the ground a good bit, but like it's elite level chase rates. It's elite level contact rates. The exit velocities are squarely average, which I wouldn't expect much more from a guy that's 175 pounds. Maybe he puts on 10 pounds and he ends up, Uh, you know, maybe just solid average power. But I think Bradfield's a guy that in Baltimore could end up hitting 16 home runs a season, you know, 12 to 16 home runs and stealing. And I said this in other podcasts, like with where the game is going, if you think Ronald Acuna Jr. has a chance to steal 70 bags, then Enrique Bradfield has a chance to steal 70 bags as well. I mean, it's he's going to walk. He's going to get on base in different ways. And he's when when he's on base, he's going to run. So I think when you're talking about a guy that's going to play elite defense in center field, cover a ton of ground, steal upwards of 50, 60, 70 bases, uh, you're talking about a guy that could be a four or a five win player. I would say the only thing like the only thing with Bradfield this year was his BABIP was so poor for a guy that's that is as fast as he is. I think his BABIP was something like 275 or 280, which is really low, really low in uh, in college baseball. So I would expect that to come up just by virtue of regression to the mean the way that the draft was playing out it looks like a lot of prototypical orioles targets were on the board with arjun namala Braden taylor and chase davis there are a lot of mock drafts leading up to draft night had them taking herson waldrop yet the pick was bradfield uh did that surprise you at the time yeah so the thing about the mlb draft that keeps me coming back every year is you think you know what's going to happen and you think you have a team pegged and you think you know you know the trends and the intel that you have is correct and sometimes it is and oftentimes with baltimore it has been but 
teams zig when you expect them to zag seemingly every year for every team. Like for me, what I was thinking and what I had been told was Baltimore was down to one of Bryce Eldridge or um, was it Walker Martin? I'm trying to think of the other player. It was, it was, he was, they were down to those two players. And at the end of the day, or Arjun Amal, I'd, I'd heard too. But at the end of the day, when the board breaks in ways that scouting directors and general managers don't expect, every team seems to zag when you expect them to zig. So, I mean, you look at some of the signing bonuses that were doled out. Like, clearly, there were deals that were made five minutes prior to the pick being made. So, does it surprise me that they went with Bradfield Jr.? Yes. In the moment when I got that info, I was surprised because he wasn't really the type of player that you would tab with Baltimore. But thinking about it, thinking about Camden, thinking about the way that the organization is currently set up from the minors up, it's a very, very good pick. Love to hear it. Um, yeah, I was definitely shocked. Uh, that's why I said I'm glad we weren't live when, when the, that pick was made. I was not prepared for that one. But um Talk about Matt Horvath for a minute there, the second-round pick. Just signed Bradfield and Horvath, both signing today. I think Horvath, a little bit underslot pick there for the Orioles. In your write-up on your big board, you referred to him as a wild card in the bunch. Uh, what about his offensive profile stands out, and where do you think he ends up defensively as a pro after moving around while at UNC? So I think they're going to give him as good a chance as any to play third base uh, he just didn't it just didn't work with the North Carolina roster construction like there wasn't a spot at third base with Justin Vandebrake and some of the other players that rotated in and out of the Tar Heels over the course of two years and his arm is so strong that it played fine in right field so I think they'll let him play third base uh, he can play left and right field as a utility guy and, and show some versatility but I'll tell you like Mac Horvath had suitors in the first round there were teams in the like two weeks leading up to the draft, I had heard that were thinking of making Mac Horvath their comp a pick on a discount after spending a ton of money in the first round. So I was act- actually expecting Horvath to go in the 31 to 40 range. And I was surprised when he didn't. Um, but when you're talking about his profile, like big power, I'd say it's pretty much average bat to ball skills. Like, um, but when you get like well, well above average chase rates, like he's or well below average, I guess is what you'd say. Um, he doesn't chase. He never goes outside of the zone and he ranks among the elite in college baseball in barrel percentage and average exit velocity. So he hits the ball really, really hard. My issue with Horvath has always kind of been that the swing is a little bit long, but to his credit, it did get a good bit shorter this year. He used his core more and he uh, was a little bit more compact to the ball. But when the hands get outside of his body, that's when he can start to kind of uh, swing and miss at breaking stuff in the zone. So what I would say is, I mean, he's kind of like what they've turned Jordan Westberg into, like a very, very mature, uh, polished hitter who, when he gets the barrel to the ball, he can really hit it hard. And you're probably just going to see like league average contact rates. So what that looks like at the next level, you know, it's it's impossible to project what that actually looks like when he's a finished product. But he could be a guy that's a 250 hitter with, you know, 22 to 24 homers and a high walk rate. It's a it's a total shot in the dark. It's a guess. We'll see if the swing works against elite level pro stuff. But that's kind of what he's shown to this point. 
certainly sounds like the, the perfect mold for the Baltimore player development system. So, uh, and as well as another guy we'll talk about in a little bit, but Tavian Josenberger was an interesting pick. He, he went from being a contact-oriented bat with good plate discipline, but not much power, to someone that most evaluators seem to believe could have low double-digit home run power in his peak. Is the uptick in power that we saw the season sustainable, and is there any more room left for a projection on him? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like I said at the beginning of the show, I think Josenberger can put on 10 more pounds. He really moves well for his size. I think he's still only like 182, 184 pounds, but it's a similar profile, like above average contact rates, elite level, like chase rates. He doesn't chase out of the zone at all. And it's just average to maybe a tick above average exit velocities. Um, and he does have a tendency to lift the ball. So if you kind of if you take that entire package and you throw 10 pounds on it and you throw seasoning and for lack of a better word like adult man muscle strength which is a real thing sometimes these guys unlock a little bit more out of their game i will be interested uh, to see mayo gets into that exactly (laughs) kobe mayo um i will be interested to see where they put josenberger on the field because he did look like a well above average defender in center field and he can really go get it out there but He's also played on the infield a little bit, and maybe they turn him into a guy like a, you know, like a Joey Ortiz, but moving around the outfield a bit more too. So, just a really interesting pick. I, I just thought Baltimore. I thought I know you guys haven't asked this question, and I don't know if you will, but I thought Baltimore and Toronto both absolutely crushed this draft. Like once you get past day two and day three, those two teams really stand out for just a whole complete draft and Josenberger is a good example why so let's uh, follow up with that when you look at those two draft classes Baltimore and Toronto what specifically stands out and uh, what can we expect those series in 2027 and 2028 to look like well um, you know I've talked about I've talked about Baltimore a good bit I think a lot of it does in this draft class a lot of it does hinge on whether or not Baltimore can turn some of these arms into good players I love Jacob Cravey I think I had him as a fifth rounder I could be wrong about that uh, I've seen Kiefer Lord a bunch when he's good he's really good and when he gets hit the fastball is getting hit Jackson Baumeister was probably the fifth best college arm in this class it's a really good slider and a deceptive slot if they can turn those types of guys into usable you know, if they can turn one of those guys into a number three starter, that's great. Uh, in terms of what Baltimore did, or in terms of what Toronto did, I don't know how this happened, but Arjun Namala going 800,000 under slot at, at pick 20 makes very little sense to me, but it does, you know, it's a feather in the cap to Toronto. Jerron Watts-Brown in the third round after not having a second round pick. I had Jerron Watts-Brown a top 50 guy. It's a plus slider. There's some command issues, but again, like that's that's real upside in the third round. Landon Marutis in the fourth round, that's a six foot three inch, 190 pound high school arm that's been up to 96 with serious whip and athleticism. I think you could turn that into something pretty special. Then as you go down Toronto's board, like Nick Goodwin, I had as a fourth rounder. They got him in the seventh round, powerful shortstop. Sam Shaw, I think I had him as a fifth or a sixth rounder, powerful second baseman, left handed hitter. They got him in the ninth round. So and they got some other little pieces like Brennan Orff and they got uh, Kai Peterson later in the draft that, you know, Toronto just got a lot of really fun pieces and Jace Borfrin might be a power hitting right fielder. So I think both teams did a good job of not only following their models and following what they have historically done well uh, developing and, and, and targeting, but I also think they 
had an appropriate level of safety and risk and also shooting for some upside. I think you got to do that in every draft. You got to have that one player, even if it's in the fourth round, you got to have that one player that has that star potential, even if it's, you know, a massively low floor. Arjun Amala could be a superstar. And I look at what Baltimore did. Enrique Bradfield could be, you know, at least a star, maybe a superstar if he unlocks something else. But, you know, Jackson Baumeister and Kiefer Lord and, you know, Jake Cunningham, they got guys that could legitimately turn into pretty significant pieces. Let's talk about Cunningham for a minute. Um, they grabbed him with 154th overall pick. You had him ranked 94th on your board. And after the draft, um, Orioles director of draft operations, Brad Selick, called him a tool set. And he's quickly become one of our favorite picks in this class. In your opinion, what kind of player did the Orioles get in Cunningham? I, I mean, they essentially got Judd Fabian with three more inches. And I don't know if Judd Fabian's going to turn out to be anything, but it's the same type of player that they selected everywhere else. You know, it's a very, very low chase rate. It is mildly concerning contact rates. Like he's probably only a, a fringy hitter. Maybe the chase rates bring it up to average, but I think there are serious concerns about if he's going to hit spin, but you know, he's a guy that hits the ball really, really, really hard. I think he was top 30 in the country in average exit velocity. He hits the ball in the air, takes his walks, doesn't strike out to the amount that is totally absurd. I think it's about 25%. So if it all clicks with Cunningham, and he was hurt for a lot of the year, so a lot of people think you know the last month that you saw him was the real version of Jake Cunningham. There were people that thought Cunningham was a top 50 pick coming into this season. My reservation with Cunningham was actually always the same as um, oh the other player that we were just talking about with Baltimore. Who was it? Josenberg? Matt Horvath. No, Matt Horvath. It's the same thing. Like when he gets in trouble, his hands get really outside of his body. And I think that swing operation can get you in trouble at the next level. But Cunningham is another one of those guys that's six foot four, 200 pounds. Like you put 15 pounds on him, you get him in the weight room, you get him more compact. And maybe he turns into something pretty special, but um, tons of power a great body, a great eye at the plate, and now you just kind of pray that it all clicks. Let's talk about uh, a couple of pitchers here uh, before, because Orioles fans were clamoring for pitching with that first-round pick. Pitching, pitching, pitching. You mentioned the need for pitchers in this system. They grabbed Jackson Baumeister, the highest-drafted pitcher in the Michael Ice era, out of Florida State. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. um, was last year. They go Nolan McClain, and he's a two-way player. So they get higher and higher, and it's like they can't even go full pitcher. Uh, but this year they do <laughs> in Baumeister. But uh, you mentioned earlier that you know he's probably one of the top college arms available in a draft class that may not have been very deep in college pitching. But what are his strengths? What does he bring into the organization? And you know what are some things for us to keep an eye on as areas that he you think he could probably improve on now that he's in a pro organization? Yeah, so decept- uh, deceptive slot, lower slot. It's a lower slot for a kid that's six foot four. He gets decent carry on his fastball. Already a super physical kid, like two hundred and thirty pounds. The slider is the carrying tool here. Like he can rip that thing up to eighty-seven miles an hour. Gets two plane tilt. It gets depth. The problem is he has to get to it, and the fastball has been what's been beat up a little bit. So if he can find a way to get his fastball in one way or the other into a more weaponized pitch where it doesn't even have to be, 
you know, a put away pitch, but it has to be a pitch that can, you know, get him ahead in the count and not just be sat on. So I, I think for a guy that is 94 to 95, up to 97 or 98, really when he's feeling it, you'd think the pure arm talent there should be, it should be like the, the results should be better than what they were at Florida State. Um, so yeah, like the changeup is is okay. Uh, it's it's inconsistent, but if he, if he can get to that breaking ball, man, it's a plus breaking ball. It's a put away slider. Some people have some issues with the delivery. There's a, if I remember correctly, there's a bit of a hook in the back that um, some think that it could be a reason why he loses his command at times uh, in the second time through the lineup, third time through the lineup. But the crux of the, like the whole thing here, the whole story on Jackson Baumeister is just getting more value out of his fastball. And I will say, even though Baltimore hasn't done a fantastic job of developing starting pitching that's been effective at the big league level, They've developed a whole lot of relievers that have fastball value. And I think if you can just extract some of that process into a starting pitcher like Baumeister, um, yeah, there's at least a shot that he's a low number three starter at the next level. Uh, another pitcher uh, with tantalizing fastball stuff. Kiefer Lord talks about him a little bit, but it's pretty cool that he went from throwing barely 80 miles per hour in 2020 to touching 99, all thanks to teaching himself on YouTube during COVID. That's pretty interesting. In your write-up, you said he has a premium frame, quick arm, and very real stuff. Just how good is his stuff, and what kind of jump do you think he can make now that he's in a pro organization and have actual instruction other than YouTube? Yeah. <laughs> um, he's interesting. He, he went from a guy at Carleton College to – he went from a guy that just threw a ton of strikes – uh, was like 91 to 92, touching 94 at Carleton. Didn't walk anybody, just pounded the zone. He had a really uh, humpy breaking ball, but it kind of worked. And he got to UW this year under the tutelage of Jason Kelly. And you know, up to 99, he's 96 to 97 at times early in games, and he would hold it through like three innings. Um, the first time, so a little bit of history. I saw him three times this year. The first time I saw him, it was the same thing as what uh, we were used to. It was 96 to 97, a terrible breaking ball, like a fringy breaking ball with a ton of hump. And he threw like three changeups. And I was like, all right, so this is a fastball over everything profile with a great frame. Like I was like, okay, you can kind of dream on this being Bryce Miller, but it's not there yet. So then I saw him again. I think it was the end of April. might've been early May. And he was 93 to 94. I think he grabbed 95 once, but he was throwing his curveball like 73 to 74. It was a fine pitch, mostly average, but some of the hump was out of it. But he was throwing this 82 to 84 touching. He might have grabbed an 85 with this slider that was sharp and had two plane break. Um, and he was clearly working on the pitch because he was just throwing the hell out of it. I mean, he probably threw 15 or 16 of them in the first three or four innings. And I said, you know, that's a, that's a very, very, very different weapon than what I've seen from him. So it has a ways to go uh, both in conviction and consistency. But I think if you can get Kiefer Lord to the point where he's throwing his fastball, you know, 94 to 96 with the carry that he gets on the pitch when it's right, um, he needs to stay behind the ball. It's not always a good fastball, but when it's right, he gets a lot of carry on it. If he can if he can get consistent throwing the 94 to 96 with carry, he can start landing that slider at you know 83, 84, 85, maybe a tick higher than that with two plane tilt and firm. And he can just use that 
curveball as a get me over or a spike curveball. I personally think Kiefer Lord has a higher ceiling than what Jackson Baumeister provides. Um, I had Kiefer Lord uh, an end of the second round pick. He went about there. So uh, he's probably my favorite pitcher that I saw in the Pac-12 this year. And uh, he's going to be able to add weight and add strength. So it's a really good body. It's a really good arsenal, um, but it's very, very green. We've also seen a stuff jump um, recently with Zach Fruit, who had been throwing 90 to 93, but then this past spring regularly running 94 to 97 with the fastball, topping out at 99. How much upside is left with him, and what kind of pitcher did the Orioles draft when they chose Fruit? Yeah, Zach Fruit was one guy the first three weeks of the season that was almost, he was like the jaw-dropping kid for me. I was a big fan of Zach Fruit in the 2022 draft. I actually had him as a day two guy, seventh or eighth round. Um, he didn't get picked, but I've always loved the way that he moved. It is a little bit, it was a bit of a, a longer arm action, but he's cleaned that up a little bit, and now he throws more strikes. A um, lot of spin, a lot of carry through the zone on the fastball. I think he touched 99 this season, actually. He, he, really, he really reached new heights. Um, the biggest thing with him is just breaking ball consistency. Like He has big stuff, um, but he doesn't have consistent shape. The breaking ball, he'll lose the strike zone with it. He'll throw it with a hump. Uh, it, it's, it's, when it's not right, it's very reliever-ish. So the way that he moves, as good of an athlete as he is, we'll see how long he actually stays a starting pitcher. But he seems like the type of guy that if you just give up on starting and you throw him in a bullpen, there's a shot he's 98 to 99 with an 87 mile an hour slider, an 82 mile an hour curveball. And hopefully he starts just figuring out where it's going. But um, always been impressed by the athlete. And I think Baltimore really stole one in the ninth round. It wouldn't have surprised me at all if he went a couple of rounds earlier than this. Nice. I just, I just love all of the, uh, as a JMU graduate, I just love all the Sun Belt talent uh, that Doris decided yeah. to bring in this year. Uh, underrated conference. Oh, yeah. Um, Tanner Witt, Orioles take him in the 18th round. He's already announced on Twitter that he's got unfinished business at Texas, which I think a lot of people kind of assume, especially after he fell to where he did. Uh, I guess, first and foremost, do you think there's still – any possibility that the Orioles could still land him or knowing what you know about wit, you think it's pretty firm. He's, he's going back to Texas to improve that stock. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of figured it was a foregone conclusion that he was going back to Texas after like the second round. I mean, he's like a fifth generation Texas Longhorn. He wears the school on his sleeve. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important to him. Um, I personally think the Tanner wit thing was more of a, an insurance policy in case one of these higher guys, like, you know, they couldn't land Lord or they couldn't land Baumeister for any reason, or they were able to save a ton of money on Bradfield for some reason. Um, and they were able to throw him like $1.1 million. But, you know, Tanner Witt is not only coming back from Tommy John, but he's still recovering from Tommy John. He's been 88 to 90, 91, much of the, of the spring and onto the Cape. He's been 88 to 90, touching 91. And, the breaking ball isn't back. Like I think if you were to ask Tanner Witt, even Tanner would say, this is like this is not the version of myself that I want to be when I go into pro ball. Um, he's been a guy that's been up to 97 in the past and uh, with a plus breaking ball. So I didn't think there was any shot that he was going to go to Baltimore unless there was some treasure trove of money that they uncovered out of nowhere. Uh, he's just He's got too much pride. He likes his school and he loves his school so much. It just figured it just made so much more sense once you got past the 
1.5 million dollar bonus you know pool area that that he would go back yeah kind of figure that looking at some of the other picks do you see i know we, we've gotten this question a lot uh do you see anyone else possibly thinking about going back pro that the orioles could might miss out on you know i haven't done my research about who they've actually signed up Michael Ferret would would be one that I would be interested in just watching. He was really good at times at the State College of Florida, and it's a really good fastball when he's right. I would be interested to see whether or not he just decides to go D one and and take another shot at it. But these these other guys like the Blake Money and Riley Coopers, and um, I'm trying to think of who else y'all pulled in. Like um, Zane Barhart was that a kid that you guys pulled yeah. in? Zach Barhart, something like that. Like, these are all guys that I would expect to sign. And, you know, other than Witt, there's a couple other potential overslot picks. Uh, the two high school players that they took, position players, the outfielder, I don't know how to pronounce it, Q-Ray or Cray Lott, and shortstop Colin Ritchie. The Orioles have a, a pretty good track record when they do go the high school route. Uh, it seems like they, they don't do it often, but when they do, at least so far, they've been good at it. Uh, what should Orioles fans know about these guys, if anything? So I don't expect them to sign Colin Ritchie. I'd heard that the number was going to be pretty big, but that being said, I mean, nothing surprises me anymore. It wouldn't totally surprise me if he signed. I actually don't know anything about Craylot. I didn't have him on my board. I didn't write him up. Uh, he's a big kid, 6'4", 170 or something like that. Um, I had to research him after the draft. So I don't have a good feel for him. I always, I think selecting someone in the 14th or 15th round, whenever they selected him is it's always kind of an odd round. It's like, okay, what, what's the plan here? Like, do you have a deal set up? Are you going to be able to bring him in? Um, so I can't give you much on Craylot, uh, but I would say Colin Ritchie. I mean, maybe you save some money by not being able to sign Tanner Witt. You know, maybe Michael Ferret doesn't go to school and all of a sudden you can pay 400,000 to, to Colin Ritchie. But, um, yeah, I don't know anything on Craylot, unfortunately. Vivek has an interesting question in the chat. Is there any chance Teddy Sharkey could be given a chance to start in this organization, or is he pure reliever? Yeah. I, listen, you're talking to like one of the number one Teddy Sharkey fans on the internet right now. That guy is an absolute psychopath with absolutely insane, insane stuff. Teddy Sharkey is kind of crazy. Like That guy is really... he's. He's, uh, he's like John Rocker, but with breaking balls. Um, I don't think there's any shot that Teddy Sharkey is going to start, even though at their best he has, and I wrote this in my blurb, three plus pitches, like fastball could be plus, slider could be plus, curveball could be plus, when they're, when they're good and when he's actually commanding them. Um, there's enough effort in that delivery. Uh, the strike throwing ability is a concern. It's not a great starter body. It's more of a reliever body. For that reason, like I think he's an eighth inning guy, but that's still I, eighth inning guy in the seventh round is good money. That's fine. I, I love you call him a psychopath. I'm sold. I yeah. think I saw yeah. one of his coaches on Twitter call him a psychopath as well. I'm like, he right, legitimately is. Like the coach wouldn't just say that. Like I, I probably watched him close out like five or six games just because of the stuff. And he is a psychopath. Like he is <laughs> out of his mind in a good way. So it'll be a fun one to. And you guys are going to get the Baby Shark song coming into Camden, which I, I'm i so glad I don't have to listen to that. <laughs> but <laughs> to each their own. Yeah. If uh, teams were mad at Brian Baker for his antics, can't wait to see uh, when Sharky gets up to the major leagues. Yeah. We've touched on this a little bit, but 
looking at what the Orioles did on the second and third days of the draft, um, were there any picks that maybe stand out to you as under the radar guys we have our eyes on? So the one guy, I'll bring this guy up because he surprised the heck out of me. I went and watched Nestor Herman throw. This is probably in March for Seattle U. I'm, I'm up here in Seattle. And I don't know if this is under the radar. I guess it's maybe a what do they know that I don't know. I didn't, nothing stood out for me. Um, maybe that was a local area scout gut feel type of guy, or maybe they got their hands on, you know, Trackman or Hawkeye stuff that I hadn't seen. Seattle U uh, historically doesn't share too much of that sort of thing. So uh, you're flying blind in terms of like, like I can look at Teddy Sharkey's numbers and just say, this guy has insane stuff. Nestor Herman, we don't have visibility into any of that, um, but he's a big kid. He's barrel chested. He certainly looks like a, you know, a five-star quarterback out there. Um, I, I wasn't, I let put it this way. I didn't even write him up and he's in my backyard. So there must be something pretty special there. Or maybe his stuff got louder throughout the year, but I am looking forward to seeing what he does in pro ball and seeing why I'm so bad at this. So that's good. <laughs> uh, we'll wrap up with this one. You've already got a mock draft up for 2024. Can you give us kind of a, what, a preview of what to expect with this draft class? Is you know, college pitching looking better? Is this the year of more high school bats? What are some of the, the strengths and weaknesses you're finding with this class already as you look ahead to next year? Good question. Um, so I've taken in three high school tournament slash showcases already. Uh, going down to area codes in a week and a half to take in pretty much everything west of the Mississippi River and see a long extended outing there. I'm fairly worried about the high school class in 2024. Um, Derek Curiel, Owen Pano, Bryce Rayner, Caleb Bonimer, um, PJ Morlando, Connor Griffin. Like there's five or six guys that are probably legitimate top 50 type players. Behind that, it's it right now it looks pretty thin. The college bats are okay. Um, like I think Weatherholt and Bazana and Kurtz and Honeycutt are all really good, and Tommy White's really good as well. But you know, there's there's a lot of question marks there too. I'll sum it up like this. Uh, it doesn't look like a terribly deep draft. I think it has potential on the college pitching side uh, with some different guys that aren't yet throwing hard. Um, but for me right now, I'm kind of just waiting to see what pops because like, listen, a year ago, I was looking at the 2023 draft and going, this is good. Like, this is good. There's no doubt about it. Um, I'm looking at the 2024 draft right now and I'm saying, this is not good. Um, this this has a ways to go. So hopefully some of these high school arms, some of these high school bats, you know, some of these college arms, someone will unlock a little bit more this this fall going into 2024 to get me a little bit more excited about the class. But for now, if you were asking me to put Vegas odds on it, it does kind of look like it mo- might be um, the weakest class since 2020. But we'll see. Well, Joe, thank you for coming on tonight. We really appreciate the insight. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your work? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Doyle MILB. Uh, you can find all my draft write ups uh, at com. And if you're really into the draft, I do a weekly podcast. It's about 45 minutes each week uh, over slot or patreon.com slash overslot.
as someone who signed up, when you released that Orioles episode, you sold me. Uh, it's oh. it's worth good. It's worth five dollars. So yeah, I've actually I've had it. I've had Brad Selick and Mike Elias on the mm-hmm. show. So uh, we'll we'll continue getting Orioles guys on for you. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Thanks, Joe. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. All right, guys. We'll see you. All right. Have a good one. That was Joe Doyle of Future Star Series giving us some really good insight <laughs> into the Orioles' 2023 draft class. So, Bob, Nick, now that we've had you know time to react to the draft class ourselves and that we've just heard from Joe and gotten that insight, what are your takeaways from the 2023 uh, draft for the Orioles? kind of just reinforced my opinion of what I was already thinking. I was talking about it in the WhatsApp group. Just, I love this draft class. It's my favorite draft class just from immediate reaction while it's happening. I think there's been other ones where it's like after a week or so I'm looking back and thinking, or even after a year later, I'm like, Oh wow, that was actually really good. But right off the bat, I just, I love the the depth. And when he was saying it was top to bottom, pretty good. That, that made sense to me. Love the, the, ceilings of some of these arms and some of these bats as well so yeah it it just reinforced my opinion that they continue to kill the draft i need teddy sharkey in a uniform tomorrow morning pitching i want to see the psychopath uh pitch but no i'm i'm excited for the pitching you know i i love you know saying jackson baumeister here pick 63rd overall if if the Orioles can unlock something there and turn him into a mid-rotation starter that'd be fantastic um but Kiefer Lord, I know <clears throat> I forgot that Joe was a Seattle-based and had probably seen Lord a lot. So it's good to get his views on Lord after watching him a couple of times. I'm even more excited about uh, what he's going to bring to the organization. And now that he's in a pro organization with you know real instructors who are going to teach him the art of pitching, and we've seen what this organization can do with guys with less talent and what they're turning them into. You know, they're not turning these guys into stars, right? But you're turning you know, guys like Alex Pham and 18th, 19th, 20th round draft picks into guys who are having success in the double and triple A levels right now. So to see a lot of the pitchers, Levi Wells, we didn't really talk too much about Levi Wells. I just think a lot of the pitchers, especially the guys drafted early on, are they have some of the stuff that I don't think too many pitchers in this organization have. And so it's going to be a lot of fun to see uh, what this player development staff can do now that they got their hands on them. Completely agree. That's kind of what stands out from this draft class. And it's something we touched on a little bit last week, which is just the number of guys that throw hard. Because to this point where the Orioles have had success or where they appear to be setting themselves up for success is with guys like Justin Armbruster, who just have these really good pitch mixes but aren't really getting by on velocity. You've got some guys in this draft class that are pumping high 90s uh, consistently. And Joe's insight on Zach Fruit was really interesting to me because – that was someone who, when I looked at day two, saw some things there that I liked about him, but I think I was more so focused on Kiefer Lord and Jake Cunningham that Fruit didn't really stand out to me. But it feels like this is a guy that has some real helium coming into the system. Yeah. I know people right after the draft feel like, all right, who's overslot, who's underslot? All right, how are we going to get Tanner Witt signed and all this stuff? How are we going to get these high school kids signed? I looked at Fruit and Bragg, uh, like they're four year starters down there in college. I honestly, without diving into their stuff, my initial thought was just kind of like, all right, they're going to give Fruit and Bragg like, what, $5,000 signing bonuses each. So who are these guys? Like Delmarva bound? Like that's that's about it. Uh, yeah, I, I love what Joe had to say about uh, Zach Fruit there. But uh, 
it's good to know that there's uh, definitely a lot more in the tank there. And these, they might still only get five or $10,000 signing bonus, but they're going to be legitimate arms here. Yeah. And I loved what I heard about the guy in his backyard. Uh, was it Nolan Ger- German? Um, yeah. The fact yep. that nobody knows anything about him. Love it. That means the Orioles know something we don't, and I can't wait to see what it is eventually. There, there is nothing. I searched for probably an hour on the depths of the internet to try to find something on Nestor Herman, and there's not a single thing. It's just Nestor Cortez or someone else named Herman in the major leagues. I don't know. Uh, the other Yankees guy that's Herman, um, Domingo Herman. Uh, there's literally nothing on this guy. So get to Del Marvis. We can get our eyes on you. There's always like one stray video or a stray article out there about a guy. So it's interesting. You couldn't find anything at all in Herman. No, I found one video. He was in like in his college locker room. They were talking to him. And he was just like, you know, I was born here in the U.S., but I lived in Mexico for a little while. I think his parents are Mexican. And he was just like, I played baseball. My dad taught me baseball. I love baseball. It's like, I got nothing from it. Literally nothing on this guy. Can't wait to interview him on the show. Yeah, and hopefully we will get a little bit more insight and be able to share that not only with the listeners of our show regularly, but also with members of our Patreon community, of which we have a few new people to welcome tonight. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob. Yeah, a couple here. (laughs) Makes it a little difficult now with Patreon having the seven-day free trials. I swear I've said Vitor de Souza Silva is a patron, but it shows him at the top now. So (laughs) I'll give him another shout-out. We also got Jeremy Reynolds. Bobby Jones and Paul Jones. I wonder if they're related. Um, but yeah, uh, just also wanted to shout out for our Patreon. Um, one of our patrons, Santiago, came out with a podcast we released on our feed. Between the Numbers, a deep dive on Dean Kramer. It's well worth checking out. I'm going to put it out on the main feed uh, Wednesday morning. Kramer's next start against Dodgers. But you, you become a patron, you never know what could happen. You can have podcasts on the network. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk now about this past weekend in the minor leagues. It was a short week for the minor leagues. They only played games on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but there was plenty of action with several players making their debuts at higher levels, including Kobe Mayo at Norfolk. You had Jackson Holiday making his first appearance at Bowie. And the first night Jackson Holiday is there, John Rhodes actually steals the show by belting three home runs in that game. You also had some high-scoring affairs over the weekend with Aberdeen, blowing out the Wilmington Blue Rocks on Friday night and Norfolk getting a high-scoring victory as well. So not a ton of action last week, but yet a lot of things compressed into a few days. Uh, Nick, I'll start out here with you. What stood out? Uh, Kobe Mayo's debut in AAA. We'll talk about that for a minute. His first at-bat showed you everything. Base is loaded, first AAA at-bat. He's down 0-2 in the count, and he draws a walk. I mean, plate discipline, uh, unmatched. He's got a couple of hard hit balls. I think his first hit was, of course, a double at what was like 100, was that 111 or something miles per hour, almost 112 miles per hour. I think last night he had like 106 mile an hour, 103 mile an hour ground outs, a couple batted balls over 100 miles an hour. Uh, He looks fantastic in a Tide uniform. Uh, It's going to look even better in an Orioles uniform. it, it's good to see him finally up there at the AAA level and doing a lot of the same things. You know, he had a couple of hits over the weekend, a uh, couple of walks. So good to see that. Heston Kerstad, honestly, I know he's been there at AAA, but you know, just looking at what Norfolk did, I watched a lot of Norfolk over this weekend. And to see what Heston Kerstad is continuing to hit the ball extremely well 
and not strike out. He only struck out one time over the weekend. So that elite plate discipline still showing out there for Kerstad. Joey Ortiz, plenty of 100-plus mile-per-hour hits, had four hits over the weekend, double, triple, had a great – I think it was a home run shy of a cycle on his birthday. I mean, the, the North bats, Connor Norby had a pair of leadoff home runs in two of the three games. I mean, a lot of these top prospects – we got Westberg in the majors now. You got Colton Kowser in the majors now. Grayson is back in the majors pitching. I think he just came out as we started recording this, but looked fantastic through the first three innings that we were able to watch before we started. But you got more of these top 100 prospects in Norfolk playing extremely well uh, as we head towards the home stretch of this season. And uh, it's it's going to make for a fun last couple of weeks here as we wrap up the 2024 season. Yeah, that was great stuff. And for me, it was just the pitching. I know they did this last year where a bunch of guys throw shorter innings out of the break, I guess, just to kind of give the arms a rest and, and let everyone get into the game after having most of the week off. But it also allowed a bunch of these guys that had moved up to make their debuts at the next level, like Chase McDermott pitched his first uh, AAA innings, gave up two runs over three innings. But you know, you had Ryan Long make his double-A debut, two and a third scoreless with three strikeouts. Um, the one guy that didn't get a chance to get in was Jared Beck, who got moved up to high A. But uh, also love that Brandon Young, who I was about to just give up on completely, all of a sudden, hey, he's back. He's pitching. He struck out five and two scoreless innings. That's cool. Kyle Bronovich continues to make his march back from Tommy John and looking great. Can't wait to see him get back to AAA and maybe to the majors this year, which would be a great story. And who was the other one? Isn't there another? Juan Rojas. Yes, Juan, Juan mm. Rojas is finally back. We don't know why he was out, but he's back, and he has not given up a run yet. So it was the pitching for me just as a whole. I want to take a little bit deeper dive into Rhodes for a minute. Um, three home runs in Friday night's game. Unfortunately, it went down as a loss for the Bay Sox, but – after an excellent June, Rhodes had gotten off to a little bit of a slow start before Friday night's game. And it was interesting because just a few days before that, there was an article that came out in the Chattanooga Times Free Press, which is uh, Rhodes' hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he gave some insight into how hard he's been hitting the ball this year. Um, and Nick, I know you shared that article on Twitter. What stood out to you from some of his uh, quotes? I loved that article. I don't know how I found it, um, but I'm glad I did. It was during the break, and he mentioned that what some of his exit velos in the month of June were like top 10 in baseball for, for how hard he's hitting the ball, and that he had never been putting up those kind of exit velos in his career. Uh, so, up to this point. So, that was really good to hear. Just other things too, like how comfortable he's feeling. The the relationships, him being able to text Adley whenever he wants to get advice and, you know, how the guys are watching what Colton Cowser is doing in the major leagues and watching his at-bats and breaking those at-bats down. So it's just really it was awesome to hear or to see some of the quotes that he put out there and, and how he's progressing. And yeah, it's last year he had the injuries. What was it? The wrist? I think it was a wrist that he missed extended time. We thought it'd be back and he ended up missing a couple more extra weeks. I wonder how healthy he was for the, uh, the rest of the season, pretty much the entire second half of the season. I don't think he was very healthy. Uh, wonder how much that wrist kind of hindered him. But I mean, he's been on a roll here for the last month and a half. I mean, he's got a WRC plus of 137 since June 1st. He's OPS of 878. He's walking more than 10% of the time. The strikeouts are high, but one other thing we know a lot about John Rhodes is that 
when you throw John Rhodes a strike, he's not going to swing and miss at it. He's one of the best in the organization at, you know, end zone whiff rate. So it's good to hopefully he's putting it all together and it's finally clicking for him because I know he's a guy that I know all three of us have been high on and waiting for that breakout for a while now. And maybe we're seeing it here now. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you want to check that article out, if you haven't had the chance yet, it's over at Chattanooga Times Free Press. Uh, Patrick McCoon was a reporter who wrote it. Uh, definitely some good insight there. So you should check that out if you haven't had the chance already. I also wanted to mention before we get into our final segment, Jackson Holiday off to a very good start with the Bay Sox. Through his first three games, he's 6 for 12 at the plate with two walks against two strikeouts, seemingly picking up right where he left off as he had been hot at Aberdeen right before the promotion. You mean opening day shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles, Jackson Holiday? Um, yeah, no, it was cool to see him get up there. And and there was an interview before uh, his first game when he talked about, you know, crazier things could happen than him making it to the majors this year. So love the confidence. And clearly the Orioles are going to push him as high as, as he can go, given the talent that he has. So, yeah, continues his just skyrocket. Or uh, what is uh, what's Mike Elias' favorite saying? lift off through this organization. He's probably going to play at all four full season ball teams this year because AAA ends a week later than AA, and I would imagine he gets moved up then. So just fantastic story. Continues to be for he's nine or 20 years old in the major league. So look forward to that as well. Yeah, and, and the Tides have also already clinched that uh, championship spot. So they're playing even longer. And so imagine the season ends and – Maybe Kerstad does get called up at the end of the year, and he's up in Baltimore. And the Tides go back home to Harbor Park. They got a championship series. They're going to try to win a AAA title in the year on a high note. You just get to add the top prospect in baseball to your roster. Uh, that's that's going to be a, a lot of fun. I, I am. I, I've seen a, a lot, couple comments too that I know we've gotten online, and I don't know if you guys have thoughts on this, but people already concerned about like holiday, a lot of singles and doubles. And when are we going to start to see the power? And people are already talking about the power numbers with Holiday. Um, like I, I would just say I got two comments like back to back the other night after he hit the double, and he only has what seven home runs I think on the year or something. Jackson Holiday is already bulked up a ton from last year. He was he was looking up. I don't want to say scrawny uh, last year during the draft, but he looked like he was nine years old uh, when the Orioles drafted him. He has bulked up considerably just in this one off season. And honestly, like I'm not concerned about it at all. Like those singles and doubles are going to start turning into home runs. Eventually the rest of his numbers are just mind blowing for his age and how fast he's progressing through the system. And honestly, the only other thing I'd say is if the Orioles were concerned about it, he wouldn't be in double a, already so like don't worry about jackson holiday's power or lack of power he's showing right now he's he's the number one prospect in baseball for many reasons and eventually what power he is going to show like that is a a big reason why as well yeah not worried about his power whatsoever go watch him uh hit some batting practice (laughs) the raw power he got the strength and his frame is plenty big enough to add much more power as he he's only 19 as he grows um, yeah, his biggest issue right now is he just hits the ball on the ground a lot, which is something Gunnar Henderson did when he was first coming up through the system. Mm-hmm. We've seen this team, this organization, correct that, quote-unquote. Um, I have no <laughs> doubt in my mind that he'll be a 20 to 25 homer guy at least once he's 
you know, in his full, full strength and uh, capabilities in the next few years. Yeah, completely agree. You're not looking for him to have the kind of power that his dad had because he's not going to be the same kind of player that his dad was. Chances are he's not going to be as large as his dad was. So it's a completely different thing. But there's, without a doubt, 20, 25 home run power there that can project out because he's only 19 years old. As you both touched on, he's already gotten stronger. And he hits the ball hard. It's just that right now he's hitting a lot of you know, sort of line drives that drop in the outfield early or their ground balls, those eventually are going to start turning into long drives in the gap. Their home runs or extra bases. It's going to happen consistently. And really the thing that I, I don't think there's much to worry about, honestly, with Holiday at all as a prospect. Just keep letting him develop, turn him loose. And I think that in a year or two, you're going to have the starting shortstop in the major leagues. Agreed. And before we get to the last thing, too, there is one other performance I, I know I enjoyed watching this weekend that I, I wanted to shout out. And he's not outside of our top 30, so we'll, we'll talk about him here. Uh, I've been pushing this agenda online lately because uh, he's becoming a new a favorite of mine, and that's Dylan Beavers. And just because I'm going to try to pull up, con- configure his stats here so I can look at the right numbers. Um just going back to, to June 22nd. Well, first of all, over the, this past weekend with Aberdeen, he had uh, four hits in three games, two doubles and a triple, two walks, two strikeouts, 364 average, a great weekend against Wilmington. Uh, but just concern about Beaver's slow start. You know, we saw this with Colton Kowser. We saw this with Kobe Mayos and Connor Norby's. We saw this with a lot of guys in Aberdeen last year. And those were all more advanced bats i think guys with higher ceilings i think guys with higher floors maybe even uh then dylan beavers we knew dylan beavers was a project when he was drafted at a cow and we know the orioles are undertaking a pretty big uh, kind of swing i don't know overhaul but it it's a project uh bat there and it just irked me when you know you see quotes saying like uh you know rival scouts don't like the swing it, it's not good it's not pretty the plate discipline like none of it's there and he's dropping considerably on the rankings it's his first full year of pro ball. And since that article came out, uh, this man is hitting 328 with an OPS over a thousand, a 174 WRC plus 13% walk rate, strikeout rate, just right at 20%. ISO of almost 300. Dylan Beavers is figuring this thing out. He's turning things around. You know, he's, he's still like, what, I don't know where he is on our rankings anymore. He's fringy top ish, 10, 10 ish prospect in this system, but I still firmly believe like the ceiling with Beavers, I think is incredibly high. Uh, you're just going to have to let, let the player development process continue to play out with Beavers and, and give him a chance. It's going to take a little bit longer, but I think if we continue to give him a chance, we'll be uh, pleasantly surprised with what we see. Yeah, it's a good point. And it's something we've talked about since he was drafted yet. I think just the fact that the Orioles have been developing these guys so fast and they've been flying through the system so much. It's like, in comparison to these other prospects who are just like two months at a level up, two months at a level up, it seems like he's taken forever. But no, I mean, he could be a high A all year, double A all next year, and still be plenty on track to be a uh, really good player in the major leagues one day. Yeah, I'm getting like kind of strong Colton Kowser parallels here. I think that Beavers, we knew coming into this year, was a lot more raw than Kowser has been at any point when he was in the Orioles system. So it's not the best comparison, but in terms of their trajectory development-wise, I kind of see Beavers as this year's Kowser, where 
you have that slow start, the numbers are a little bit disappointing in the beginning. You start to doubt, you know, anything that you may have thought good about him previously. I never did with Calder, and I honestly haven't with Beavers either. But you can sense that the the outlook on them is turning in some corners. And then all of a sudden it clicks and it's like, oh, this is what we were waiting for. This is the kind of gap power that Beavers has been showing lately, this constant extra base hits. And you're starting to see that this is going to be one of those guys that when he gets to Bowie, the home runs are going to show up. And I could see him hitting well at double A once he gets there. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And with that, we'll head into our final segment of the night where we shout out players outside of our top 30 for something they've done recently, whether it's been a good game, a good week, a good couple of weeks, or just something interesting in the stat line that we want to note. And I'm going to start with Bob this week, who I think has some guys you want to have on your radar for the rest of the summer. Yeah, a position player who I feel like, yeah, he's been around since the 2021 international signing period. And I, I guess it's just a case of, I forget how young these guys are sometimes when they get signed, but Anudis Mordan, I feel like they're, what was the joke I was going to make? Uh, I feel like there might be something more than we thought um, before this season because he is just 19 years old, 6'1 catcher slash first baseman. He was in the DSL the past two years, didn't hit a lick really, but he came into this year and had 60 plate appearances. He's walking over 20% of the time, striking out 18.6% of the time. He's got an ISO of 404, four doubles, five home runs already, a 198 OPS. Just like the bat has just exploded out of nowhere, and it's more than just like power. It's like we talked about with Rolfi Cruz, who has struggled in full season ball. That is a big jump, but just the walks are way higher than they ever were the past two seasons. Strikeouts way lower. Kind of like at the Creed Willems thing, another catcher. Just the the stuff behind the scenes is kind of matching the production. And I've even seen his name come up on some like analytics tweets about guys who are destroying uh, the complex leagues. And uh, just thought he deserved a shout out. Only 19 years old. He could be at Delmarva at some point before the season is over. And it would be well-deserving. And then another guy, another FCL guy, Brainer Sanchez. Actually, he's in low A Delmarva now. That's why I wanted to give him a shout out because he's reached that full season ball. Twenty-two years old, six foot four, right-handed pitcher. He's got a one point eight zero ERA in his first five innings. Three saves, no, one save. Sorry, <laughs> one save so far. Uh, he's striking out. Load, please just load. Uh, a bunch of guys striking out, out everybody. A lot of guys, eleven point two guys per nine innings and walking under to one point nine eight with a 3.29 ERA combined between the FCL and low A with a 3.27 FIP. So, yeah, shout out to those young guys. Love both of them. I think, yeah, you can move Mordon probably up in Delmarva soon and uh, give uh, Basayo the bump up there to Aberdeen. I think Adam Redspot's done for the year, so that opens up a a spot there in Aberdeen's roster. Uh, I'm going to stick low level as well. I'm going to go my hitter first. I'm going to go low to the DSL. Luis Vicioso, a little bit older. He's a 20-year-old. This is Jorge Mateo's brother. Uh, he is a catcher, but I think he's played first base like pretty much every game in the DSL this year. Just signed as part of this year's class. Hit his first home run 
I saw, I think he posted clips from like every single angle possible on his Instagram. If you want to want to check that out, it was good to see. Uh, this guy has got some uh, pretty incredible, uh, just raw power for, you know, at the DSL level, obviously, but he's played 24 games. I just want to shout at his stat line. I know DSL stats, they are what they are, you know, but still he's, and he's a little bit older, but he's hitting 370 through 24 games. He's got an OPS of 953. Uh, First home run, like I just mentioned, six doubles, two triples, only 14 strikeouts, only six walks as well, but strikeout totals is low. So, uh, you know, Jorge Mateo is, is iffy. If you're a Jorge Mateo fan, you know, or if you're not, then Jorge Mateo doesn't seem to get a ton of love some nights. So we'll give his brother a little bit of love here on the show. Uh, and then for my pitcher, I'm going to stick to Delmarva as well. We got lots of Delmarva pitching to talk about here to wrap up the show because these arms are starting to flourish down there at the low level. I'm going to go Edgar Portis. A guy who last year was not good, and I he wasn't on my radar to like watch or pay attention to. Honestly, when he would come into games at the beginning of the year, you know, that's you hit the fast forward button uh, to get through the rest of the game. I really wasn't paying attention to him, to be honest. And the other day, I believe it was Sunday, uh, yesterday, he struck out six guys across five innings. He didn't walk anybody in that resumed game that got rained out, uh, suspended on Saturday. Looks fantastic. And just the jump he's made, he's, again, one of these guys who he's only 20. I don't think he, I don't know when he turns 21, but I don't think it's for a while. But signed in 2019, back when it was the July signing period. So, again, yeah, one of those things where you don't realize how young these guys are when they sign. Still just 20 years old. Last year in Delmarva, 57 innings. He had an ERA of 6.32. And he had 49 strikeouts to 37 walks. But this year, he's at 58 innings, so just about the same. ERA is down to 3.84, and he has 75 strikeouts to 25 walks. So uh, Portes is on my list, and I, I'm going to – I got some free time later this week. I'm going to go back and rewatch that game against Salem, and next time he takes the mound, I'm going to pay extra close attention to him, see what we got here. Yeah, I feel like all these international guys in Delmarva the past month have just been lights out. I feel like a lot of guys that had five-something ERAs a month ago now are in the threes, and it's pretty cool to see. With that, I'll actually start with my pitcher, and that's Davey Cruz. Uh, this is someone who is certainly flourishing at Delmarva lately. Cruz actually got some uh, attention last year for a solid year at Delmarva, but he went back there this year, uh, really, I think, to work on his command. And the walks still could be lower than they are, even though he has improved in that area from last year. But he has been pitching really well lately, a trend that continued during Sunday's doubleheader, he came in relief of Zach Sowalter, delivered four shutout innings, allowing just two hits with four strikeouts and no walks. And in fact, over his last three outings, Cruz has been excellent. He's recorded a victory in all of them. That includes one start and then two long relief outings. In 11, 13 innings pitched, he has struck out 11 batters, walked just four, given up eight hits, not allowed to run, and 62% of his pitches have been for strikes. So Cruz is a guy with good stuff. I think he's just on the outside looking in of our top 30 now, only 19 years old, and now seems like he's really turning a corner after mixed results over the first few months of the season. And then for my hitter, I got to shout out Billy Cook. His two-for-five performance at Akron or against Akron on Friday continued what has been an excellent two months from him. We're seeing a lot more power in that span and also – Continuing steal bases, I believe he's 14 for two or 14 for 16 in stolen base attempts since the beginning of May. So he has been excellent to play. 
I'm trying to pull up his season long numbers. Uh, Billy Cook hit like barely 100. I legitimately, I think he hit what, 103 the first month of the season. I'm like, all right, that's he's maxed out. He's done. This is just pure raw power. He's what ninth or tenth round pick. It's all right. That's that was fun. He's in double A. He's overmatched. But my man now has a 114 WRC plus 261 batting average on the year. The walk rate's up to about 10 percent. 11 home runs on the year. The swing is funky. The setup is weird. It's he, he's a corner outfielder who hits bombs, but he plays can also play second base. And yeah, he's seven, 17 stolen bags. He stole 25 last year. He stole 32 last year across two levels. I don't know what to make of him because everything is just weird, but it's working right now. And I I love it. I love Billy Cook at this point. It's so ugly. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is. So before Google Chrome crashed, I was going to read this off, which is that since May 2nd, Cook has batted 305, the 920 OPS, 11 homers, 45 RBI. So he has been nothing short of impressive over the last two and a half months. Uh, and with that, we will wrap up this episode of On the Birds. Thank you so much to Joe Doyle of Future Star Series for joining us to recap the Orioles 2023 draft class. Thank you for tuning. For those of you who tuned in live while the Orioles and Dodgers were on, thank you. We appreciate you splitting your viewership or maybe give, putting the Orioles on the back burner and giving us your full attention. Either way, happy for the support. We will be back next week. In the meantime, check us out on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And while you're browsing around the internet, be sure to head over to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com where you can get the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, Terps, other college sports, and more. And while you're there, be sure to hop on the message board and join in discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors to BSL. And you can become a member of our Patreon community for as little as $3 a month, have access to our WhatsApp groups, and then at the $5 and $10 levels, have access to exclusive bonus daily coverage. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On The Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.